0: So let's see some of your questions here. I'm just gonna go with them uh, one at a time. So first question is, have you helped kids with cerebral palsy if, how did it help them? So yes, uh, as a matter of fact, cerebral palsy, I've told you a number, about a number of cases already. A lot of the kids that I've, I've told you about who are unable to walk uh, and are now walking, these are, these are classic cases of kids with cerebral palsy. Um, so, uh, and the way I, I approach all kids, regardless of whether or not they are, oh just realize this, this is over there. You don't need to see me. Double. There you go. Um, so, uh, in, in order to, um, to, to work with, with any kid who's got any sort of neurological thing, I have sort of a system that I've developed where in the beginning, we're going to do super gentle stuff, which is what we taught you, right? We taught you cranial work. We taught you sustained contact, right? Uh, those are the kind of things that we're starting with, uh, with these kids. Um, very, very gentle because we're trying to get their nerve system ready, right? We're trying to get the nerve system ready. And then once their nerve system is ready, now we will start to work with other things. We'll start to do activator um, or full spine sort of adjustments. But the first thing we want to do is make sure that they are ready. Make sure their nerve system is okay with what we're doing with it. One of the biggest issues that I see in chiropractic is that chiropractors tend to rush into trying to do stuff, and they think that the, that the more they can move the bone, the better the results are gonna be, but sometimes that is not what these kids need. Um, so, in the, I, I think I mentioned this to you last week, but in the last several weeks, we've had two kids who were not walking at all. One was four years old, and one was 10 years old, and both of them started walking within four or five months of their first adjustment, after getting years of other kinds of therapy. So, um, but that we started very, very gentle and slowly worked our way up. Good question. Next question. How do your care plans work most different than adults and children? That's a great question. So how do my care plans work? So, uh, and this depends, the, the amount of money depends upon where you live, right? So if you're in New York City, you're gonna be charging different than you if you live in Atlanta, and you'll be charging different than you if you live in you know, Valdosta is everything is gonna be based upon uh, in terms of monetarily based on that. Um, But in terms of adult and and children, I don't do anything different. So as an example, let's just, let's pick a number. So the first person in the family is $300 a month for as many adjustments as they can kind of get themselves into the office. Um, We're only there three times a week, so that's the max they could possibly do. But let's say it's $300 a month. The second person, as an example, let's just say another $100 a month for the second person. So, and I don't care if it's an adult or a kid, but the, so the first person is this amount, and then any person after that is no. let's say, as an example, $100 a month or $50, whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter what the amount is, um, so that it doesn't double, it's not like $300 for the first person, $300 for the second one, $300 for the third person, then you're gonna, you'll never see a family. The reason we see so many families is because we keep it very affordable. Dr. Sid, you know, my mentor and, and hero, also here while I was at Life University, uh, and for years until he passed away, um, he used to always say, "I accept all cases, regardless of condition or financial ability." And that's that's pretty much the model of how I practice. So we try to make it affordable for everybody, and by starting at a at a pretty good fee and then not doubling and tripling that fee, that's why we can see families of four, five, six, seven, you know, uh, because we we want to make it work for them. And that's our whole uh, goal is to is is to do that. Um, very important to understand, though, if you're going to charge cash. Two things, two really important things. Number one, you still take notes on everybody, right? Just because you're a cash practice doesn't mean that you don't take notes. I have some people tell me, that, oh, I don't need to do DHR. I need to have hands this stuff because I'm, I'm a cash practice. Er, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You still got to take notes just like anybody else does. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're going to have a cash practice, or especially if you're going to have a, a practice where you're going to take any insurance, but you also have a cash practice in it, you've got to be able to split and demarcate, here are my cash patients and here are my insurance patients. So if you do that, you have to, you have to join a company like PCD, Preferred Chiropractic Doctor, Health USA, one of these kind of things. And then you ask your your and you're, that's free for you guys. And then you ask your patients to pay a fee to that company, so that you can prove why my fee for him is different than my fee for her. Because otherwise, if you have a fee, let's say three hundred dollars a month for a family, but then you're charging uh, hundred dollars per visit on insurance, and you ever get audited, you're going to get in a mess. So if you have, if you're going to have any insurance in your practice whatsoever, uh, you need to ha- you need to. Have your patients be a part of Preferred Care doctor or Care Health USA, etc., so that you can say the, they're in my plan. That's why they have these cash patients, they, these cash plans. Is because that's my plan, and then you have the insurance people in insurance plans. So, good question. I like it. Uh, yes. It was three hundred for per the first person. What well, was the second? So, as an example, as an example, three dollars for the first person, one hundred dollars for every other person. So 100 100, 100, 100, 100, right? So that's one example of how you can do it in many different ways, permutations. What was the biggest challenge you faced in practice? Huh? biggest challenge you faced in practice. All right, I think, okay. so I think this is the biggest challenge I have faced in practice over the years is uh, not staying stagnant. So I, my practice has changed as time has changed. So in the beginning, I was very sports-based. I didn't really like that, so I changed towards pediatrics. Um, but at that time, my pediatrics base was mostly like ear infections, you know, bedwetting, those kind of things, you know, asthma, allergies. Um, and then as time moved on, I started going more towards you know, autism, ADHD, or disorders. So as the world changed, I changed. And that's the biggest thing, is that if you stay the same, you're gonna sink. So it's very important to constantly keep up with the times. Over the, the years, in, you know, when I first was in practice, I was 100% insurance. Over time, insurance became a really, really big hassle. I, I had to hire someone, aside from my s- staff, a separate person to make phone calls, make phone calls, make phone calls, it was just, and, it was, and, and, they, and it wasn't working anyway. You know, we were just having arguments all the time. And, We've, we, we had patients who uh, would call up for insurance for us and it was just horrible. So we just eliminated all the insurance and it's, it's been magnificent. I go home. I go to the practice, I go home. That's it. I don't have to, I used to be in the office on all my off days calling insurance companies, looking at insurance things, trying to figure it out. We don't do that anymore. So that was a, that was a really big thing to constantly change when the world needs us to change. So I think that was the biggest thing that, about our practice. Okay, is visiting local community clubs to recruit patients a good idea? If so, which ones have you done? That? Uh, okay, so um, I, think, I think visiting anybody is a good idea. So clubs are good uh, uh, if you can visit um, like providers that you like, want to get to le- you know, learn about uh, uh, pediatricians or OBs, et cetera, those are good things. Um, clubs, I've, I've spoken at Rotary Clubs, I've spoken at Kiwanis Clubs. I've spoken in uh, high schools. Uh, I've spoken in career days. Um, I've spoken in career days in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, and in college. Um, so I, I used to speak all over the place. I don't do it as much anymore because I have interns, you know, doing it now. Uh, but I, I used to really go out there a lot and speak. So because the more people you meet, the more people are going to want to get to know you and to do to do business with you. So I think, plus I think it's very important in the beginning to get involved in a professional organization, such as Rotary or Kiwanis or, or church, your church groups, the church groups are great, or, or temple groups or whatever, are very, very good to get involved with. but really get involved. Uh, I was president of Rotary Club for a couple of years, and that was, it really gave me a lot of like street cred and authority in my community. Um, and even though I no longer uh, uh, belong to a Rotary, uh, at the time I thought it was a great organization and they really did a lot of good in the world. And it's always good to give back to your community. So that's an important uh, lesson. Um, how to get involved in your community to attract moms and kids into practice when you're not a parent? <clears throat> Excellent question. So I'm gonna give you the number one way to get new patients into your office. Write this stuff down. I call it the survey. The survey. S-U-R-V-E-Y, the survey. So this is what you're gonna do. You're going to get a clipboard, and you're gonna walk around your business community, not door-to-door on houses, but your business community. You're gonna walk around your business community and uh, with this clipboard, and you're gonna say, hi, you know, uh, my name is uh, is Dr. So-and-so, and and I'm a chiropractor here uh, in in town right there, you know, this village, whatever it is, uh, and, um, I'm new in the area and I want to know, what do you think about this region? And you hold your clipboard, what do you think about this region? Oh, I love it, really, what do you love about it? What's your favorite thing? Oh, I love I, I go to this church over here, and I go to that restaurant over there, and I belong to this organization over here. And you write all this stuff down, it. Right right right, 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 Um And then you say, um, then you say, oh, this is great, like, uh, can you, Give me more specifics, like what, what, what group do you speak into the church? Oh, well, I, I'm part of the men's club, I'm part of the brotherhood, I'm part of this organization, I'm part of the Rotary. Great, can I have contacts on that? And just start building all these contacts. And then here's the key, this is what you gotta do before you uh, actually do this survey. You need to find out in your community some family that has a need, a really big need. For instance, when I first came down here, um, <clears throat> I met someone who was at a local church who knew that there was someone else in their church whose uh, the house had burned down because of a fire, and now they were living like you know in like a hotel, and they, they didn't have any money, and they, they didn't have insurance on the house, and they needed to they needed to, uh, to do a big fundraiser, and they were doing a big fundraiser in that church, so I said, would you mind if I helped contribute to that? They said, oh my god, that'd be so lovely. So what I did is I said to, to everybody at the end of our conversation, we. I talk, what else do you like? This is great, thank you so much. This is really nice meeting you. And what usually is going to happen at the end of your conversation is you, you say, hey, can I have your business card? And you give your business card, you, they take uh, the, your business card, and you say, would you mind if I, and now you have their business card, their email, emailing, would you mind if I emailed you an open house invitation? And everybody's, oh, sure, you're such a nice person, I left this, thank you so much, it was nice to meet you. But about 10% of the people are going to say this, so, you're a chiropractor, huh? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have this, and they start talking about themselves, or their kids, or their wife, or whatever, right? And this is, this is how you close them. You say, okay, because I'm new in this area, as a way of saying thank you for just spending time with me right now and giving this great information about all the different things that you're involved with, I'm gonna offer you the new patient exam. Normally, it's $150. I'm gonna offer it to you for $50 if you sign up right now, but $25 is gonna to go to the XYZ family who had that horrible fire you might have heard about. And everybody was like, oh, you're giving money to the XYZ family? You heard about the fire? Yeah, I wanna give half the, half the money I raised for this. 30 new patients my first week. 30 new patients my first week in practice. And then I gave them the same offer to bring their family in, 30 more new patients. So by the end of my second week in practice, 60 new patients, right? Instant, instantaneous. So, and then we had an open house. So all those people that we, so you gotta hand out 500 business cards. That was my goal. I handed out 500 business cards in about six or eight weeks or so before I opened up the office. And then I've emailed all these different people and a handful of them came patients as well because I had the same offer on the email. Come to the open house, free food, you know, drinks. Get to meet your neighbors, etc. And we're having this really great offer because we're trying to help XYZ family. So if you're interested, which I didn't push on everybody, right? I don't want to. I'm not trying to make someone who's not even interested in chiropractic become a patient. But the people who are interested. I told them, and then, but I, then I offered it to everybody, and we, we got that first punch, right? And that's how you do it. That's how you build a practice really, really quickly, is by doing something that's gonna involve the community, meeting all these different people, being the super nice person that you are, and then, um, and then asking if they're interested in becoming a patient. But doing it with an offer, that's irresistible. If a child or baby is moving around too much and you're having a hard time trying to adjust them, what have you found to be an effective way to get them to be still? Good question, so it depends if, if um, if they're moving around too much because they're crying and upset, I say to the mom, go feed them in the back and then come out when you're done. Because there's no point in trying to, to adjust a kid who's crying, screaming, hungry, etc. <coughs> Otherwise, if they're moving around a whole big bunch, this is why we have interns in our office, I usually will have an intern try to distract them. So and We have different toys, different like sort of uh, uh, very specific toys for kids with um, more like special needs neurodivergent things are going on with them. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to engage them into playing with a toy, not a phone. We try to avoid phone. phones. There's only a couple of patients who really have some very significant issues that we allow to have a phone uh, playing. Uh, most of the time is we try to have some toys to really engage them in, um, in, in, in playing. So, uh, and, and this way they, they'll play as they get adjusted. But that's why it's important to to like, I can do a lot of different adjusting with a kid seated, with a kid, you know, uh, you know standing even if they have to, sitting on mom or dad's lap. Don't force, the, don't force a kid to lie face down because that's, that's the, what, is what makes it really hard for these special needs kids, is you put them face down like this, they don't want to do that. <coughs> that was good, good question. Okay, great question. How much money do you think is necessary to open up after uh, practice after school? Not much, my answer is not much. Um, I had, when I, when I graduated, I had $10,000 to my name. That was it. Uh, I had no, and that was a, a gift from my grandma who had, um, had given it to me to, to open up my practice. So that was my seed money, that's all I needed. Um, and if, and I didn't want to spend all that money, so what I did is I got a few credit cards And I I got a couple of Visa cards and an American Express card. And I bought my x-ray machine with the cards. And I bought all these things with those cards. And then I ripped up all the cards except for one that I used for the business. So I didn't use a lot of actual cash. I let that kind of sit there. Um, And I used the credit cards. And then, um, so I was able to start my practice with $10,000 in the bank and some credit cards. So you do not need a lot of money. Uh, And I didn't, and my my first practice, I didn't open up a practice with everything brand new. I opened a practice that was like, you know, my father would call it schlock. It was, in other words, it was just junk. Like I had, I, my father gave me some tables and chairs and my aunt and uncle gave me some tables and chairs and every chair was mismatched in the office. And I just, and I asked I, you know, some of my friends for some like posters and whatever. So we just hung whatever we could around and it was just total like, you know, chaos kind of stuff. Because, but people didn't, weren't coming to see me because of my office being this gorgeous, you know, beautiful place. They were coming to see me because I was offering something different. So, you don't need to have like, the greatest looking place with the best furniture and spend 100 grand, 200 grand, like I hear some people saying, you have to spend 100 grand to open an office. That's absurd. If you have 100 grand, go for it. But if you don't have any money, like I didn't, I, I, I had nothing practically. Um, and if it wasn't for my grandma giving me $10, I would have had zero. But you still could do it just with credit cards. <clears throat> because if you get 60 new patients in your first couple of weeks, you'll be fine. You'll be fine because from that point on, you're rolling, rolling, rolling. It's just that, that that first couple of weeks, you just gotta pump it up really hard and take that two months beforehand and really make sure that practice is gonna, is gonna rock. <coughs> Top things to have in your contract when starting. So, uh, so contract, uh, depends on if you mean uh, a lease contract or an associate contract. So I'll answer both. <coughs> So in a lease contract, the number one thing you must have, and please write this down because this this will save you stuff later on, you must have a a clause in your contract in your lease that you are exclusive. You are the exclusive chiropractor in wherever it is you're at. You must, 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 must have that. I have friends uh, who uh, open up practices and could not secure a exclusive exclusivity clause in their contract, and literally the landlords opened up another chiropractor next door to them. So I don't want to see that happen to you. You have an exclusivity contract in there. That's the single most important thing you're going to have. Number one. <clears throat> number two is try if you can to get build out included to some degree or not. Especially in, this, in today's day and age, try to get build-out included to some degree. You don't have to build out your own office. You don't have to build. You don't have to spend all that kind of money because you're putting in walls and ceilings and lights. You shouldn't have to pay for that because you can't take it with you, right? You pay for the stuff you can take with you. The front desk you have to pay for, right? The 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 um, the maybe some fancy you know fixtures, etc. Stuff that you can take with you, you can pay for that. Kind of stuff. The, the speakers in the ceiling and the sound system, you pay for that. But don't pay for walls and ceilings and toilets, because you can't take that stuff. And that's what you say to the landlord. I'll split the cost with you, if they won't pay for it all out. You say, I'll pay for you know, the things I can take with me, you pay for the stuff that's gonna stay here. You pay for the carpet, you pay for the paint, you pay for the, you know, the, the toilet, you pay for the air conditioning, you pay for the things that I will not leave this office with. And a lot of times they'll be, okay, especially if you sign a long-term lease. You sign a year lease, date, they ain't gonna do squat for you. I signed a 15-year lease, they were willing to work with me. And, uh, and that's what you do, you say, I'm, I'm gonna sign a 15-year lease. Now what you do at a 15-year lease is every five years you renew. So this way, if you hate the place, or you don't wanna be there anymore, or whatever it is, you get out within five years. But that's important, so either one of those will work. Uh, Now, the most important thing that you need as an associate contract is a similar kind of thing, um, is you need an escape clause. You need an escape clause in an associateship contract, an escape clause. Why do you need that? Because let's say you you hire this uh, guy or this person uh, hires you, and you find out that they are lying, cheating, stealing, insurance fraud, all that kind of stuff. You want to get the hell out, or they're mistreating you, or whatever it is. You want to get out. But you hire, you're in a two-year contract, you can't get out of it? You can't get out of it. So you need to have an escape clause that says, if for any reason I feel that this isn't right for me, with a 30-day notice or whatever, I can get out. So 30 days is fair. I'll give you a month to try to find someone who just probably can But I'll give you 30 days. And they, you can negotiate longer if, if, they need, if you need to. But you need to have that in there. Because I've had uh, former interns who've been stuck in contracts for two years and they can't get out. And, and they tried to say, I want to get out, and like, well, I'll sue you. And you'll, have to, you'll, you'll, have to, you'll owe me more money with, because of what's, you have to hire a lawyer, and the, you don't want to do that. And they're just stuck. And how sad is that, to be stuck in something like that? So make sure there's an escape clause in your contract. And make sure also, in all your associate contracts, that whatever they claim they're gonna pay you, they, it's in the contract. The reason I did, I, it was a good thing, but the reason I stopped being an associate, I was an associate for six months. And the doctor I worked for was a great doctor, but he promised me a lot of things, well, this bonus this and bonus this and bonus this and bonus this, and all those things came to be, even though I worked my tail off six days a week for this guy, it's because I wasn't in the contract. And that was my mistake. I was 20-something years old, I didn't know. Uh, but now I know that if, if, you say, if the person says this, 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 this bonus, you spell it out for me. I won in the contract. And... Next thing about this, don't start an associate until you sign the contract. I've had some former interns who said, oh yeah, 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 he, he just hasn't a contract ready, the lawyer hasn't looked at it, and then it, they're like two, three, four months in, and now they're really upset because they still don't have a contract, and now the guy's reneging, oh, the bonus thing I told you about, well, I didn't mean it that way, I meant it this way, and the, the pay that you're supposed to get every week, you only get every three weeks, and you're, you're actually we're, we're taking this out of it, and, this, and and don't start without a contract, because you're just, cruising with that kind of thing. What's your favorite thing about being a chiropractor? <laughs> wow, okay. Um, my favorite thing about being a chiropractor is adjusting kids or talking about adjusting kids. If I'm adjusting children or talking about adjusting children, I am in heaven. Uh, and like yesterday, a brand new two-week-old baby, I'm looking this baby in the eyes, and I'm just like... There's a, there's a Yiddish word called kvel. And to kvel... I mean, like when you look at a little baby and they're absolutely gorgeous and they smile at you and you smile at them and you get this like like feeling inside, that's kevelling. And that's what I was doing yesterday with this little one. I was like, oh my God, you are so beautiful. The mom had a, had, her labor was three pushes. Three pushes, right? First, her first baby, she was not in the care, and long labor, blah, blah. Second labor, she said she hardly got to the hospital, three pushes, baby's out, right? And like she tells me the story, I'm looking at this baby. I'm cavelling, right? Like this is it's like a dream. Like what else could I possibly do but I'm gonna do this? So I love I love teaching and I love adjusting kids. Um, that's my favorite things about being a chiropractor. Two more questions. What is the best piece of advice you learned over the years that you wish you have new, known sooner? All right, great, great question. So the biggest piece of advice that I wish I would known sooner was was this from Zig Ziglar, one of my favorite motivational speakers. Work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Work harder on yourself than you do on your job. I made a big mistake in the early days to work so hard on the job that it was to the detriment of everything else. Um, And luckily my beautiful wife stood by uh, me during that crazy time. Um, But uh, I've seen a lot of uh, relationships bust up because of that. Um, So uh, that's super important. And not only is it just important for the relationship, it's also important to work on me. Because I started out in a poverty consciousness, like I told you. And I had to train this poverty consciousness out of my head. Because my parents used to tell me, money doesn't grow on trees. And you know, we we don't, what do you think you are, the electric company, because you left the lights on, and you're, and you know, we, our family's been poor for generations and generations, so don't expect anything to change, except for being poor, just like we are, and I just, that's what was in the mantra in my head, in my head, in my head. I had to train that out of me, and the way I trained that out of me, is I listened to Zig Ziglar and Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and all these motivational speakers, I pounded the stuff in my head, I read books by them, I went to their seminars, um, I suggest if you have a consciousness like I used to have, that you train this stuff out of you. Read Think and Grow Rich. Read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Read Richest Man in Babylon. Read these books. Listen to the the speakers I just mentioned or other great speakers. There's a lot of great uh, uh, new motivational speakers uh, out there that I'm not as fond of because I like the older stuff. But there's a lot of people that you can listen to and, and read books on and really train yourself. How do you deal with a parent or guardian that is not open or anti-chiropractic? That's a hard one. Um, uh, what I try to do with a parent who's anti-chiropractic um, is uh, I try to, to teach them about the brain and nerve system, which is what I try to do with everybody. But I really try to educate them. And I also try to find out what is their biggest fear? Like, and why are you against chiropractic? Like, are you against chiropractic because of a bad experience? Right, are you up against chiropractic because someone, like a chiropractor tried to, like, I just talked this one on the phone the other day. She's like, well this other chiropractor I went to wanted me to pay $10,000 uh, for my care plan and wanted it right there and was, and was like, kind of like trying to pressure me into doing this. And I didn't want that. Are you all chiropractors like that? So I had to explain, that's not what all chiropractors do. This is what we do, etc. So one of the biggest things that I would suggest is if you find someone is is anti-chiropractic is find out why. Find out why. Fix the why, right, so if, if they're worried, are you, gonna, are you gonna turn my kid into a pretzel and go, crunch, crunch, no, that's not how I do it, right? Oh, I thought everybody in does that. No, that's not how every chiropractor does it. And then you teach them about the brain and nervous system. Right? so you start with, why are you like this? Be very empathic, listen, shake your head, change their thought process, and then move them onto the brain and nerve system, get them to understand what that is, and then how it's gonna help them or their their kid. So,